It's November 9th, 1989. You're in the sixth grade at the elementary school in your quiet, anonymous, suburban town. You try to keep track of what is going on in the world because your teacher's always asking your class about it. But your attention is really fixed on baseball, the WWF, and the afternoon block of cartoons and sitcom reruns. Dinner just ended and game shows don't come on for another half hour, so you figure you'll flip channels until you find something good. Then, suddenly... A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. Thousands pouring across at the Bornholmer Bridge. NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. Tonight, from West Berlin... Good evening, live from the Berlin Wall on the most historic night in this wall's history. What you see behind me is a celebration of this new policy announced today by the East German government that now, for the first time since the wall was erected in 1961, people will be able to move through freely. You might not watch the news very often, but you know this is important. You know that from this point on, a lot will be different. Welcome to Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. Now, I would love to say that I'm the kid in that intro because I was 12 in the fall of 1989, but my memories of the Berlin Wall coming down are learning about it secondhand, probably in school. We really didn't watch the evening news and didn't get Newsday or any of the other papers. But that's not to say that I didn't do what I could to keep track of what would happen over the course of the next couple of years. Between 1989 and the end of 1991, a huge revolution took place in Eastern Europe, one that began in countries like Poland and what was then known as East Germany, and finished with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So what I will be doing in this podcast miniseries is looking at those two years now that we are 30 years on, but also going back to the past and giving a retrospect of a popular culture that was created during the Cold War and was about the Cold War. In case you don't know me, my name is Tom Panneries, and my regular gig here on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network is hosting Pop Culture Affidavit. This miniseries is its latest spin-off, and you'll hear new episodes once a quarter, with a total of 10 episodes, dropping between today, November 9th, 2019, and December 31st, 2021. In each episode, I'll talk about the events that took place 30 years ago, and maybe some applicable pop culture touchstones or moments. And then we'll flash back to something from the earlier part of the Cold War. It might be a specific film, comic book, or television show, or it could be a more general topic that has several examples. But I'm going to start with the Berlin Wall, and I'm going to start with Berlin itself, because Berlin, after the Second World War, is the crux point of Europe. And of course, it does go back to Adolf Hitler, and it does go back to the Second World War. It was obviously the capital of Germany at the time, and it was the final objective in the European theater. After the Nazis fail in their invasion of the Soviet Union, Stalin's forces begin to push westward in a quick and brutal manner that winds up being swifter than the U.S.-led Allied invasion of Western Europe via Normandy in 1944. Ladies and gentlemen, this is no time for generality, and I will venture to be precise. A shadow had fallen 
upon the scenes so lately lightened, lighted by the Allied victory. No, no, nobody knows what Soviet Russia and its communist international organization intends to do in the immediate future. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. This is all me simplifying for the sake of brevity and being able to establish some context, but I wanted to mention it because the wall and the Cold War it represents are the latest in a series of events that began in 1945. 1945, Berlin got divided into four zones of governments, with the United States, the United Kingdom, and France overseeing what becomes West Berlin, and the Soviets occupying and eventually controlling East Berlin through a proxy government. So because it was the ultimate objective, and because the Allies didn't want to repeat the mistakes of 1919 and the Treaty of Versailles, Berlin has continued military presence of outside powers and a continued jockeying for positionings of influence and control among those occupying powers. Had you been born after 1989, it might be tough to imagine Europe is so divided and the relative peace in the continent so precarious. But while the Allies, via the Marshall Plan and the Soviet control, prevented Germany's return to imperial and dictatorial power, the tensions between the Allies, more specifically the superpowers of the United States and the Soviet Union, would edge Europe toward a third world war a few times in the 47 years of the Cold War. One of the earliest moments is the Berlin blockade of 1948, and I feel that it is important here because it happens so soon after the Second World War and puts a point of emphasis on the city's importance. Now, I mentioned occupation zones earlier, and those occupation zones in Berlin reflect the way that Germany as a country was divided from 1945 to 1949. The German Democratic Republic, or what we would come to known as East Germany, and I'll refer to it as the GDR, was formed as a Soviet satellite state in 1949. This came after the three British, American, and French zones were merged into one state, or, well, West Germany. Berlin was an issue itself because the city was 100 miles inside of East Germany. The Allies all claimed governance and access rights to East Berlin, and the Soviets restricted that access to only certain air corridors and particular highways. In short, the blockade began with the Soviets restricting shipping traffic and then escalated to a currency crisis with a full blockade in place when the Deutschmark was introduced on the 18th of June 1948, as the Soviets protested a new independent German currency which would have given power to West Germany and the West as a whole. The Soviets cut off all land routes to West Berlin and more or less tried to starve out the city and wanted to force the Western nations to abandon the city entirely. This way, Stalin's control over all of East Germany would be solidified. However, since the Allied power had negotiated air rights and air routes in and out of Berlin, they decided to airlift tons of supplies into the city. Endless cars of vitally needed coal are stalled by the Russian blockade of Berlin. But that is only part of the story. As the red noose is drawn closer about the western sector of the capital, switches are pulled on generators, and the fuel famine forces drastic power cuts. Berlin becomes a city of darkness as all ground communication is severed and industry comes to a standstill. 
But the Western Allies fight back with an airlift of 450 flights daily, carrying thousands of tons of food into the beleaguered capital, flying an air corridor threatened by red fighter planes. Backing up the shuttle are 60 B-29s, which arrive at an airfield in England, a base from which American planes once bombed Germany. Now these Yanks may fly on a mission of mercy, the feeding of hungry Germans in Berlin. These are the men whose nerve-wracking job it may be to fight their way through weather and red obstruction. So grave is the crisis that General Clay is recalled to Washington to report on the situation. He is greeted by Secretary of the Army Royal and then is welcomed by Chief of Staff Omar Bradley. On his shoulders may rest the responsibility for peace or war and the Commander-in-Chief at the White House awaits his appraisal of the most explosive situation yet in the struggle between East and West. The airlift goes on for 15 months as the Soviets show signs of wanting to end a blockade and lift it in May, with the airlifts officially ending on September 30th of 1949. 2,326,406 tons of supplies were airlifted into Berlin, and 101 people died, mostly due to non-flying accidents, although a few planes did crash. This keeps Berlin as a central place in the struggle of the superpowers, and as the Soviets continue to rule over East Germany, a number of citizens flee the East to the West via West Berlin. So let's fast forward to August 25, 1961, which is the date of an issue of Life magazine whose cover story was about Berlin. They went inside the city detailing the struggle between the eastern and western parts of the city just as the wall was beginning to go up. Titled On the Brink in Berlin, it was a look at protests that were springing up against the construction of the wall. That had started on August 13th when the Soviets began barricading the border between East and West Berlin with barbed wire and fencing, fortifying it with the presence of tanks and guards. The U.S. sent more troops to, into Berlin and Vice President Johnson visited the city. He is quoted as pledging for all Americans, our lives, our forces, and our sacred honor. Among the photographs in that issue of life, there are three that show a 19-year-old East German police officer named Konrad Schumann defecting to West Germany. In the photos, he leaves his post after what the caption says was 26 hours of guard duty, jumping over barbed wire and ditching his gun once he made it to West Berlin. The picture of his escape was one of the more iconic images of that time in the Cold War and was even used in the beginning of the 1982 movie Night Crossing. Schumann successfully did defect to West Germany and settled in Bavaria where he met his wife and worked in an Audi factory in Ingolstadt for nearly 30 years afterward. He was interviewed after the fall of the wall and commented, Only since 9th of November 1989 have I felt truly free. He remained in Bavaria, however, because his defection left very old wounds between himself and his family that had remained in East Germany. Tragically, he died by suicide in June of 1998. That Life magazine pictorial is available on Google, and I'll link to it in the show notes, because it juxtaposes the joy of newfound freedom that those who were able to escape to West Germany felt, and the sadness and frustration and resignation of those who did not. But the wall, which is our focus in some way of this episode, gets built in 1961. And over the years, it will be reinforced and modified with a second fence built parallel to the original wall. 
This winds up creating an area between the two walls known as the Death Strip. It's a gravel path that provides no cover, so guards in one of the observation towers could easily spot and kill any fugitives. In full, the Berlin Wall was 156.4 kilometers in length, with a height of 3.4 to 4.2 meters, according to its Wikipedia page. This included concrete walls, mesh fence, and spaces for 186 observation towers, 259 dog runs, and 20 bunkers. Freedom Bell in West Berlin tolls in sympathy for East Germans on the first anniversary of the Wall of Shame that holds them prisoners. It was just a year ago that authorities in Communist Germany, appalled at the numbers who were fleeing to the West, threw up the wall. East German boss Ulbricht cut worshippers from their churches, separated parents from their children. But at the same time, he unwittingly united Germany as never before. On this anniversary, wreaths are placed where people died, jumping to freedom. And at checkpoints, authorities are on the alert to prevent outbreaks among West Berliners who might seize on the anniversary to vent their wrath on East German guards. U.S. patrols check a segment of the 95-mile-long barrier. Brief memorial services led by Mayor Willie Brandt in tribute to the scores who died seeking freedom. The slogan of the day among the West Berliners is marked on the cross, We Accuse. They march along the wall, a display of silent contempt for communist efforts to imprison their friends and relatives. At dusk, tensions erupt in a rock-throwing barrage. The police have their hands full and don't succeed in quieting the Westerners for some time. The anniversary day of the shameful wall. The wall was referenced in popular culture, of course, including popular music. In 1962, Tony Fisher recorded a song called West of the Wall. Written by Wayne Shanklin, it tells the story of two lovers separated by the wall and that they'll be reunited. The song hit number 37 on the Billboard Hot 100 in July 1962 and was the number one hit in Australia. Here's a clip. But I'd say that easily the most celebrated song that was inspired by the Berlin Wall was David Bowie's 1977 hit, Heroes. Recorded in West Berlin and coming during his Berlin period, the song tells the story of two young lovers, one from East Berlin and one from West Berlin. Bowie would play Berlin in the front of the Reichstag on June 6, 1987 as part of a three-day concert at the Wall. 
and his concert has been credited as one factor in what eventually became the fall of the wall. According to a Vox article by Max Fisher published after Bowie's death in 2016, the concert's radio broadcast reached East Berliners because they could easily get the American-run radio stations that were broadcasting out of West Germany. In fact, West German radio stations had secured broadcast rights for the entire concert from the record company, and Bowie performed close enough to the wall that it could be heard in East Berlin, where a crowd did gather to listen. Here's an excerpt from the article. The mood was one of enjoying forbidden fruit, Olaf Pock, then a 15-year-old kid living in East Berlin, later told Deutschwelle, which I believe is a magazine or newspaper. We knew that this was something being done for our benefit. When Bowie performed on the second night, he began telling the crowd in German, We send our wishes to all our friends who are on the other side of the wall. He sang Heroes, the song he recorded in Berlin a decade earlier amid the city's Cold War fear and violence. Fisher later quotes Bowie himself, who said, It was one of the most emotional performances I've ever done. I was in tears. Bowie later said of his performance in Berlin, and he went on, We kind of heard that a few of the East Berliners might actually get the chance to hear the thing, but we didn't realize in what numbers they would, and there were thousands on the other side that had come close to the wall, so it was like a double concert where the wall was the division, and we could hear them cheering and singing along from the other side. God, even now I get choked up. It was breaking my heart. I'd never done anything like that in my life, and I guess I never will again. The day after Bowie sang, a Western German broadcaster named Christoph Lantz, who emceed the show, visited his friend in the East. When it was time for me to leave, he said with teary eyes how much he wished he could go with me, Lantz later recalled. All he wanted to do was go to hear a concert. I still get goosebumps when I think of that. After Bowie's performance on the second night, however, the East German police decided that enough was enough and began arresting people who had gone out to listen at the wall. Some of this crackdown turned violent. A week later, then-President Ronald Reagan visited Berlin and gave his famous speech. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, If you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The combination of the concert at the wall and Reagan's speech helped change the mood in East Germany and bolstered protest movements that were already underway, movements that I'll talk about later in this episode. For now, here's some of Heroes to take us into our break. When I get back, I'm going to look at the John Le Carré novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold.
Hey there, welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on the Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, the Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. Spy Who Came In From The Cold is John Le Carre's second novel and is second to feature his British spy character, George Smiley. Published in 1963, it draws inspiration from the animosity between NATO and the Warsaw Pact by telling the story of Alec Lema, who is an agent sent on a dangerous mission into East Germany to frame the book's villain, a high-ranking East German intelligence official named Hans-Dieter Munt, as a double agent. Lema is the right man for the job because at the beginning of the novel we see him losing his last asset when his own double agent is shot trying to cross a checkpoint between East and West Berlin. In the film version starring Richard Burton, this is the famous Checkpoint Charlie that was run by the U.S. military. Since then, Lema has been more or less chained to a desk job and crawled into the bottle and the British intelligence service, nicknamed the Circus, offers him his mission. He accepts it, and to set up his cover as a possible defector to East Germany, the circus fires him and then sets him up with a job at a small library. It's here where he meets Liz Gold, who is the secretary of the local Communist Party, and with whom he starts a relationship. He then accepts the mission fully. He tells Liz not to go after him if he is ever in trouble or disappears, and sets up his fake defection by getting arrested for assaulting a grocer. After he gets out of jail, he's approached by an East German intelligence official who takes him into the country via the Netherlands. While this is going on, George Smiley, who is a retired agent and Le Carre's most famous character, visits Liz's apartment, offers her financial help, and also asks about her relationship with Le Mans. Liz happens to be traveling to East Germany on a sort of exchange program, and she winds up going there at the same time Le Mans is in the country. Furthermore, there is a struggle within East German intelligence among various high-level officials, namely Munt and another high-ranking official named Felder. And that results in Munt's arrest, and Munt will be forced to testify for himself at his own trial. While this is all being set up, Lema continues to look into the situation. Between this and the trial, Lema discovers that Munt is actually a British agent, and he realizes that he... Ma has been the victim of a double cross. The whole purpose of this mission was to go after Felder, who was getting too close to revealing that Munt was a double agent. 
Liz is forced to testify at his trial and reveals the relationship between her and Lamont as well as how she received financial help from George Smiley. She also admits that he said said goodbye to her before he assaulted the grocer and went to jail, which means that Lamont's cover is basically blown. He decides to reveal all to protect her, but before he can do so, the trial is stopped and Felder is arrested. The novel ends with Munt ushering Lamont and Liz to the Berlin Wall and giving them instructions on how to make it over. She decides to go with him despite her disgust at the whole operation. Munt was the despicable ex-Nazi while Felder was more of an idealist, and she hates that she had a hand in taking down the ladder. They climb the wall and Lamont makes it over first. Just as he reaches down to help Liz up, she's shot by an East German operative. Smiley, who is on the other side of the wall, tells Lamont to come over to the west, but Lamont climbs back over to the East German side, and he's shot and killed as well. This book came out in 1963. In 1965, it was made into a film starring Richard Burton as Lamont and Claire Bloom as Nan Perry, and she is the Liz Gold character in the movie. And the character name was changed reportedly to avoid confusion with Burton's then-wife, Elizabeth Taylor. The movie follows the novel pretty closely. It's shot completely in black and white, which I don't think was entirely unusual, but was definitely on its way out as the 1960s went on. Both are thrilling and suspenseful. I will admit that it took a little bit for me to get used to the fact that this wasn't the type of spy novel that I was expecting. My experience with spy characters is mostly James Bond films, and that particular British secret agent will have its own spotlight later on in the series. James Bond, however, is a dashing international man of action, and the films are full of intense action. This is a much slower burn, where the tension comes through conversation, such as secret meetings and subtle double crosses. Le Carre, whose real name is David John Moore Cornwell, was implied by MI6 and wrote the novels under the pseudonym because agency policy was that agents could not publish under their own names. But from what I've heard, his novels were well informed by his knowledge of the game and are pretty well regarded by those with intelligence experience. Le Carre's own intelligence career was cut short in 1966 when he was outed among a number of other agents by a double agent. Back to the novel, like I said, it's a much slower burn than I expected, and once I got used to the energy of it and that level, it became more and more intriguing. I thought that Le Mans was a great choice for a protagonist. He came off as a bumbling drunk at first, but the fact that he was actually more calculating really rounded out his character. And while Richard Burton was considered a Hollywood sex symbol during the 1960s, knowing what I do about his personal life, he was pretty well cast as a drunk. Alright, that's a little bit snarky. But really, Burton's one of those actors who always looked worn, especially in a number of films from this era. He was nominated for Best Actor for this role, one of his seven Oscar nominations, although he never did win. And this is well-deserved. Like I said, the novel relies a lot on the machinations of the spy game that comes mostly through conversation and interrogation, and therefore director Martin Ritt has to have the film rely on the performances of its actors. Plus, they both get at the tension of the time, when relations between East and West were still very hostile, but had existed for so long that there was, well, a natural rhythm to it, I guess you could say. Yeah, you have a major flare-up the following year with the Cuban Missile Crisis. The United States gets deeper and deeper into Vietnam as the 1960s wear, wear on. 
And um, I'm not really going to be talking about Vietnam in this uh, mini-series because I just completed my own series on the Vietnam War called In Country. So if you're interested in listening to all 100 episodes of that, just go over to twotruefreaks.com and look up In Country. Besides, most of my focus is going to be based in Europe. And uh, we are in Europe here in the early 1960s, nearly 20 years after the end of the war, and at least 15 years since the Berlin blockade and airlift. So this game of spies, like I said, it's been underway for a while. And if it has a rhythm, rules, etc., this reflects it. The world and the spy who came in from the cold feels very real. It feels very lived in with the well-worn characters that go with it. And the use of the checkpoints and the walls, the focus for the most tense moments, both beginning and end, do well to represent what the Berlin Wall stood for. But it only stood for another 33 years because, as I said at the beginning of the episode, in 1989 it was opened and eventually came down. I'll talk about that after this. For years, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man, from giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests, from massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures, from romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as MASH, Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited, and there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will fire and water conquer next? Introducing Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. That was the song Looking for Freedom by David Hasselhoff. And no, I'm not playing that because... 
Germans love David Hasselhoff. I'm playing it because it was a huge hit in Germany during 1989, and it wound up being a rally song during the celebrations at the Wall following its opening on November 9th. In fact, the Hoff would play a concert at the Berlin Wall on New Year's Eve 1989, singing the song while standing in a cherry picker bucket that was positioned over the crowd. If you've seen the footage, you also know he was wearing a piano keyboard scarf and a light-up leather jacket. But pop music, as much as it influenced the youth movement and the culture of Germany in the late 1980s, was not the reason the wall opened on November 9th. It wasn't even Reagan's famous Mr. Gorbachev tear-down-this-wall speech. No, the opening of the wall came as a result of a combination of long, massive East German protests, a protest movement, actually, and a bureaucratic error. All of these are detailed in the outstanding book Collapse, the Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall by historian Mary Lee Surratt. She relates the events of late 1989 in East Berlin from the perspective of a number of players in that particular drama, including East German officials, leaders of the protest movement, West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, and even NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw. I'd say that the East German officials and the leaders of the protest movement were the most important people in the book and in the events leading to the wall's opening because they had the most direct influence on those events. Surratt traces the protest movement to its origin in the late 1980s, which had gained traction because of economic hardship in East Germany, as well as the reforms implemented by Mikhail Gorbachev a few years prior. There are specific protests that took place in October of 89 in Saxony, Dresden, and Leipzig, and it's worth noting that reunification wasn't what everybody in the movement was looking for. Some who were protesting the East German regime simply wanted to reform that country and had a sense of a separate identity from the West, and they worried that if the country were reunified, that identity would get swallowed up by absorption into the West. Still, they celebrated the night the wall was open, and it should be noted that while water cannons were used to knock protesters off the wall on November 9th, there was no great show of force and no reported widespread violence, which was partly influenced by the Tiananmen Square massacre earlier that year. If you don't remember, Chinese students and other protesters occupied that part of Beijing in spring of 1989, and after a standoff of several days, the Chinese government went in with troops and violently cracked down. The massacre appalled other leaders, according to Surratt, but not the East German Politburo. Egon Krenz, who would go on to be the head of the Politburo in November of 89, visited China in late September and had decided to use the Chinese reaction as a model when responding to the October protests that I mentioned earlier. It completely backfired on him. Surratt notes that the ruling regime, by responding with violence and fulsomely praising Tiananmen Square's crackdown at every opportunity, had not only failed to suppress the growing movement, but also created new converts to it. So you have this massive protest movement, and you have a few protests in other cities that did have violent clashes with the police. But the catalyst for the opening of the wall while the protest movement put pressure on them, it was the issue of a travel, uh, travel restrictions and the way they were communicated. After violent crackdown and protests, the East German government restricted travel, but then the movement continued to grow. Somewhere between 70 to 100,000 people participated in a massive protest on, in Leipzig on October 9th. This is considered successful. 
The protesters continue to pile on the pressure, with the government allowing travel to Czechoslovakia to resume. Some then allows East German citizens to go to the West German embassy in Prague and defect. On November 4th, half a million people protest the government in East Berlin, and on November 6th, there's another draft of a new travel law, which is widely condemned and met with protests from nearly 500,000 people in Leipzig. Notice that the movement out of East Germany is what is, once again, just like in 1948, the issue of contention. There is an anecdote in Jim DeFeedy's book, The Day the World Came to Town, 9-11 in Gander, Newfoundland, about how Back in the Cold War, people would fly from Berlin to Gander, Newfoundland with a willingness to defect to the West. So, um, and he, he even jokingly said that the, ease, the quickest way to, from East Berlin to West Berlin was in, Gander, was in Gander. The West German embassy set up an office in the airport or in Newfoundland so that people could fly there from East Berlin and then defect and get on a plane to West Berlin. And it was just one of those many ways people found their way out of, out of Eastern Europe in the 1970s, especially the 1980s, as uh, the cracks really began to show in the Soviet control. So, as I said, you have protest movements, some turn violent, they restrict travel some more, so nobody can leave the country, then they open it back up to Czechos- so they can go to Czechoslovakia. People are still trying to defect, they go to Prague and they go to West Germany, and then um, they draft another travel law, and then you have a 500,000 person protest in Leipzig. And then we get to November 9th. And this is where the East German government opens the wall by mistakenly announcing that travel restrictions have been lifted. There's a miscommunication between Berlin and Moscow, and we have this press conference given by Gunter Schabowski, who declares all travel open. The press honestly doesn't know what to do with the information. They're caught totally unprepared. A lot of times the press conferences, or at least from what I've seen in the news, etc., is that when it's called, you have an anticipated situation or like the press secretary or somebody give, gives correspondence a heads up. So news networks could tell the audience what they're expected to be talking about. They can set aside airtime, et cetera, et cetera. I, I can't think of very many press conferences I've seen on the news where there wasn't some prior knowledge of what could possibly be talked about. Stabowski had been one of the people who helped draft this travel law, this tra- the new version of the travel laws, which essentially did res- lighten restrictions, but it wasn't supposed to open the wall the way, or there was a miscommunication there. And going into this press conference, and the guy was not the best person to deal with the media. His English wasn't 100% accurate, but he'd assumed that the press had been given the latest plan from the government, but they hadn't. So reporters were completely caught off guard. He makes this announcement saying basically all the travel restrictions are lifted. And Reuters comes in at 702 that says, Leaving via GDR checkpoints immediately possible. East German citizens wanting to depart can starting immediately use all border crossings. Those who want to depart no longer need to take a detour via Czechoslovakia. The responsible police officers are instructed to issue visas for immigration immediately. The AP wire went out three minutes later with GDR opens borders. Now, this is essentially the opening of the Berlin Wall in a way that is, again, comes out of nowhere. 
and it takes the American media by surprise. Tom Brokaw happened to be one of the th- the only one of the three big news anchors, and the other two were Dan Rather at CBS and Peter Jennings at ABC. He happened to be the only one in Berlin, and therefore scored a major journalistic coup. In Surratt's book, Brokaw is interviewed and details how one of NBC Nightly News' producers basically booked him for travel to Berlin on a hunch back in November of 89. There had been th- those things going on, saying that there's going to be some sort of reaction, maybe we could do a a story there. Maybe something will happen or maybe there will be something to cover. So Brokaw was at that press conference in 1980, on November 9th. He managed also to get an interview with Shabowski after he made the announcement. Again, caught totally by surprise. There was no, there, there were, you know, the idea that they would do some more with the travel restrictions and how people would react, but here we got this this German bureaucrat saying travel restrictions have been lifted. And, and in the interview he gets, because people are like mobbing this guy and they usher him to the room with Brokaw, and Brokaw asks him, do I understand correctly? Citizens of the GDR can leave through any checkpoint they choose for personal reasons. They no longer have to run through a third country. Shabowski responds, uh, they are not further forced to leave GDR by... Uh, transit uh, through another country. Again, this guy did not have the best understanding of English. Brokaw follows up with, is it possible for them to go through the wall at some point? Shabowski says, it's possible for them to go through the border. Brokaw asks, freedom of travel? Yes, of course, Shabowski says. It is no question of tourism. It is permission of leaving GDR. This, again, is all from Mary Elise Surratt's book, The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall. She details the movements that Brokaw and his crew made after that, which was securing a place near the Berlin Wall, as as well as permission to shoot at the time of their scheduled satellite uplink, which was 12.30 a.m. local time, or right when the NBC Nightly News began at 6.30 it was a lot of scrambling up to the last few moments by producers in the field and producers back in New York, but Brokaw went live with his memorable broadcast. The immediate aftermath in East Berlin was one of the GDR government trying to mollify what were bound to be angry Soviet f- officials and essentially to do damage control while citizens continued to go to the wall and continue the party. The Soviets themselves tried to mask their own confusion, while Western countries such as the United States and the United Kingdom offered congratulations and words of support. Even Helmut Kohl, then-Chancellor of West Germany, was caught off guard. He interrupted a diplomatic trip to Poland to visit Berlin. Surratt also points out that the timing was absolutely perfect, as Gorbachev was still a number of months away from a coup staged by hardliners who were against his policies, and Iraq had not yet invaded Kuwait. That would significantly shift United States foreign policy in the summer and fall of 1990. Of course, this would eventually lead to German reunification in 1990, which I'll get to in a later episode. But I want to close out this section by reading an excerpt from Surratt's book, which is one of my favorite anecdotes in the book about the night of November 9th. Another young woman, an employee of the Central Institute for Physical Chemistry, was on her way home from a visit to a sauna when the news of the night inspired her to head for Barnholmer. Her name was Angela Merkel. She had chosen a career in chemistry, not in politics, but that night would change her life. Merkel had been born in Hamburg in 1954, and even though she and her immediate family had moved to East Germany in 1957, she still maintained contact with her aunt in her hometown. 
On the night of November 9th, when she made it to West Berlin, Merkel would call that aunt to say that she had crossed the border. And Surratt goes on to say this ultimately led to her getting involved in politics. As you know, at least of this recording in late 2019, Angela Merkel is the chancellor of Germany and one of the most powerful people in the world. Surratt also points out that despite there being several pieces of the wall all over the world, especially in various points in the United States, Germany itself is restrained in memorializing and chooses to go the route of more simple information plaques than statues. I have never personally been to Berlin. What was known as Checkpoint Charlie is still there and is now a tourism destination preserved as a relic of its time. But I have seen pieces of the wall. At one point, starting in the early 90s, you could buy pieces of the wall through the mail. You can still order them with certificates of authenticity. Honestly, it's just a piece of concrete. But I do remember someone in school having a piece and bringing it to show one of my classes. More impressive was the huge section of the wall that I once stumbled upon by accident one day in October of 1999. My first job after graduating from college in May 1999 was as an editor with what was then called the National Imaging and Mapping Agency, or NEMA. It's now the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA. Anyway, this agency was created as a joint venture between the CIA and the Department of Defense to oversee a lot of the United States satellite intelligence operation. My job was to proofread and edit the imagery analysts' briefs before they went out to the network and the intelligence community. Honestly, despite having a top-secret clearance, it wasn't an incredibly exciting job, and I wound up quitting about nine months in and before I could get transferred to the Pentagon in mid-2000, mainly because I was very bored. I guess when you're 22 and you're the youngest person in the room by far, a federal government job like that is not exactly the environment that is going to set your world on fire in a manner of speaking. But that's not my point. My point is that in working for NEMA, I got hired by the CIA. Uh, that was the side of the operation that I was I was recruited by or, or went to the interview for. Before I could go to work at the NEMA facility in the Washington Navy Yard, I had to do two weeks of training at CIA headquarters. It was called CIA 101. It was a combination of basic onboarding stuff like insurance, HR paperwork, retirement account information, you know, that sort of stuff along with sessions on how to work while having a clearance and also getting to know the culture of the CIA. And while it was cool to actually be sworn in by then-Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet, the coolest thing for me was the tour of headquarters, which included the lobby that you see in movies and television shows, as well as a giant piece of the Berlin Wall that was on grounds. Picture a huge concrete wall the size of one of those like racquetball or handball court walls you see at like your park or your high, local high school. I mean, yeah, it was nothing more impressive than your average highway sound barrier, but I was pretty awestruck by it. I mean, when I was a kid, this thing represented so much. It represented this divide that between like two halves of the world and how it was restricting the freedom and the rights of people who were in a country that was oppressive. And it coming down in 1989 represented opening up and embracing that freedom, embracing their 
their human rights to you know to the things that we talk about in our country life liberty the pursuit of happiness you know those things that are in the declaration of independence and and i realize that the west german government is not the united states government but at the same time you know we our, our political philosophy at least in its purest form centers around the idea that that the, those rights are inalienable so they are basic human rights not rights granted to the, somebody by the government but by protected by the government of its citizens and people in general and throughout the cold war and this is something that that i'll look at over the course of this series i was raised and came to to see this this um u.s side of things as we were on the right side the good side that that our beliefs versus those of the communist soviet union were the ones that people wanted because we offered more freedom. And to a large extent, that is true. There are things our government has done in the past that are not um, in line with the perfect form of those ideals, I guess you could say. Uh, like I said, I did an entire podcast about the Vietnam War and a Vietnam War comic, and the government that we were propping up in South Vietnam was pretty awful and pretty corrupt it didn't it was not exactly you know pure of heart when it came to democracy and capitalism we've had we haven't had the best track record as far as latin american countries so we have work to do on ourselves but at the same time you know you go back to as flawed as the man was jefferson and you go back to locke and rousseau the the philosophers that influenced him as he was writing the declaration of independence there's that idea that the government exists to essentially help guarantee and protect those rights and serve the people. And in East Germany, you're not getting that. You're getting people being restricted of their rights, being restricted to travel. And you're getting a government that says you cannot go there. You cannot get through this wall because... You know, we want control over all of that. And for the 12 years I was alive while the wall was standing, to me, that was wrong. And the wall comes down in 89, or opens up in 89, and eventually is, is torn down. And I believe sections of it are still standing, um, but not, you know, just almost as a kind of a decaying memorial. That comes down, and you have, like, this relief, this freedom, this, this, it's this benchmark at the end of the cold war the idea that you are reuniting people with their families you are allowing for a sense of freedom and that you as maybe two governments are saying hey perhaps a giant wall between these two parts of the city is not the answer perhaps people could move because there is because you know there is this, there there is while it while it is tough you know peace between our two halves of the city and peace between our two countries might be a better solution and friendship and cooperation might be a better solution than animosity and restriction so that's why i wanted to start here because while gorbachev comes to power in i think 85 86 and perestroika and glass notes begin to start like soon after that. This is the moment where everything really, really comes to light, at least came to light for me. 
And after this, you have just all of these countries all of a sudden shrugging off Soviet control. And there are some struggles and there are some that don't really struggle very much. But again, you know, looking back 30 years from now, this time of like joy and peace because a wall came down and the government that was in power lost that influence and, and that started to break down because the more you... God, I'm going to quote Star Wars. The more you tighten your grip, the more star systems slip through your fingers. You know, that idea that you, that you can only be so dictatorial before and, and so mad before people turn around and say, this isn't right. So that's my brief history of the Berlin Wall. It's a few pieces of Cold War era pop culture that featured or used it. If you're looking for something more contemporary, I recommend the comic series Strange Skies Over East Berlin. This is by Boom Studios. It begins with an attempted escape over the wall before it veers into total X-Files territory. As of this episode, I think the first issue, maybe the first two issues of what's a four-issue miniseries are out, and I've really enjoyed it. Now, next issue, I'm actually going to go into what's going to be more like the regular format of this show, which will be spending the first part of the episode looking at the events of 30 years ago, but then going back to vintage pop Cold War pop culture. The look at 30 years ago will be November 1989 to February 1990. And I'm going to start all the way back in the 1950s with some classic 1950s Red Scare comics. We're talking, is this tomorrow? World War III, Atomic War, and of course, Captain America, Commie Smasher. That'll be out in February of 2020. Until then, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, find me on Facebook, write and review the show, both Pop Culture Affidavit and this on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to email in, and as always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this miniseries and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War. Watching the world break out.